Chapter 8, Part 2 of The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of H.M.S. Bounty, Its Causes and Consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. THE EVENTFUL HISTORY OF THE MUTINY AND PIRATICAL SEIZURE OF H.M.S. BOUNTY BY SIR JOHN BARROW CHAPTER Eight, PART Two. THE LAST OF THE MUTINEERS On the approach of the Blossom towards the island, a boat was observed under all sail, hastening towards the ship, which they considered to be the boat of some whaler, but were soon agreeably undeceived by the singular appearance of her crew, which consisted of old Adams and many of the young men belonging to the island. They did not venture at once to lay hold of the ship till they had first inquired if they might come on board, and on permission being granted, they sprang up the side and shook every officer by the hand with undisguised feelings of gratification. The activity of the young men, ten in number, outstripped that of old Adams, who was in his sixty-fifth year, and somewhat corpulent. He was dressed in a sailor's shirt and trousers, and a low-crowned hat, which he held in his hand until desired to put it on. He still retained his sailor's manners, doffing his hat, and smoothing down his bald forehead whenever he was addressed by the officers of the Blossom. The young men were tall, robust, and healthy, with good-natured countenances, and a simplicity of manner, and a fear of doing something that might be wrong, which at once prevented the possibility of giving offense. Their dresses were whimsical enough. Some had long coats without trousers, others trousers without coats, and others again waistcoats without either. None of them had either shoes or stockings and there were only two hats among them, neither of which, Captain Beechy says, seemed likely to hang long together. Captain Beechy procured from Adam a narrative of the whole transaction of the mutiny, which, however, is incorrect in many parts, and also a history of the broils and disputes which led to the violent death of all these misguided men, with the exception of Young and Adams, who accompanied Christian in the bounty to Pitcairn's Island. It may be recollected that the bounty was carried away from Otaheite by nine of the mutineers. Their names were 1. Fletcher Christian, acting lieutenant, 2. Edward Young, midshipman, 3. Alexander Smith, alias John Adams, seaman, 4. William McCoy, seaman, 5. Matthew Quintal, seaman. 6. John Williams, seaman. 7. Isaac Martin, seaman. 8. John Mills, gunner's mate. 9. William Brown, botanist assistant. They brought with them six men and twelve women, natives of Tabuai and Otaheite. The first step after their arrival was to divide the whole island into nine equal portions, to the exclusion of those poor people 
whom they had seduced to accompany them, and some of whom are stated to have been carried off against their inclination. At first they were considered as the friends of the white men, but very soon became their slaves. They assisted in the cultivation of the soil, in building houses, and in fetching wood and water, without murmuring or complaining, and things went on peaceably and prosperously for about two years, when Williams, who had lost his wife about a month after their arrival, by a fall from a rock while collecting birds' eggs, became dissatisfied, and insisted on having another wife, or threatened to leave the island in one of the bounty's boats. Being useful as an armorer, the Europeans were unwilling to part with him, and he, still persisting in his unreasonable demand, had the injustice to compel one of the Otaheitans to give up his wife to him. By this act of flagrant oppression, his countrymen made common cause with their injured companion, and laid a plan for the extermination of the Europeans. But the woman gave a hint of what was going forward in a song, the burden of which was, Why does black man sharpen axe to kill white man? The plot thus being discovered, the husband who had his wife taken from him, another whom Christian had shot at, though it is stated with powder only, fled into the woods, and were treacherously murdered by their countrymen, on the promise of pardon for the perpetration of this foul deed. Tranquility thus restored. Matters went on tolerably well for a year or two longer, but the oppression and ill-treatment which the Otaheitans received, more particularly from Quintel and McCoy, the most active and determined of the mutineers, drove them to the formation of another plot for the destruction of their oppressors, which but too successfully succeeded. A day was fixed for attacking and putting to death all the Englishmen while at work in their respective plantations. Williams was the first man that was shot. They next proceeded to Christian, who was working at his yam plot, and shot him. Mills, confiding in the fidelity of his Otaheitan friends, stood his ground and was murdered by him and another. Martin and Brown were separately attacked and slain, one with a maul, the other with a musket. Adams was wounded in the shoulder, but succeeded in making terms with the Otaheitans, and was conducted by them to Christian's house, where he was kindly treated. Young, who was a great favorite of the women, was secreted by them during the attack, and afterwards carried to Christian's house. McCoy and Quintel, the worst of the gang, escaped to the mountains. Here, says Captain Beechey, this day of bloodshed ended, leaving only four Englishmen alive out of nine. It was a day of emancipation to the blacks, who were now masters of the island, and of humiliation and retribution to the whites. The men of color now began to quarrel about choosing the women whose European husbands had been murdered, the result of which was the destruction of the whole of the former, some falling by the hands of the women, and one of them by Young, who it would seem coolly and deliberately shot him. Adams now proceeded into the mountains to communicate the fatal intelligence to the two Europeans, McCoy and Quintel, and to solicit their return to the village, 
All these events are stated to have happened so early as October 1793. From this time to 1798, the remnant of the colonists would appear to have gone on quietly, with the exception of some quarrels these four men had with the women, and the latter among themselves. Ten of them were still remaining, who lived promiscuously with the men, frequently changing their abode from one house to another. Young, being a man of some education, kept a kind of journal, but it is a document of very little interest, containing scarcely anything more than the ordinary occupation of the settlers, the loan or exchange of provisions, the dates when the sows farrowed, the number of fish caught, etc. And it begins only at the time when Adams and he were sole masters of the island, and the truth, therefore, of all that has been told rests solely on the degree of credit that is due to Adams. McCoy, it appears, had formerly been employed in a Scotch distillery, and, being much addicted to ardent spirits, set about making experiments on the tea-root, Dracaena terminalis, and, at late, unfortunately, succeeded in producing an intoxicating liquor. This success induced his companion, Quintel, to turn his kettle into a still. The consequence was that these two men were in a constant state of drunkenness, particularly McCoy, on whom it seemed it had the effect of producing fits of delirium, and in one of these he threw himself from a cliff and was killed on the spot. Captain Beechey says, The melancholy fate of this man created so forceful an impression on the remaining few that they resolved never again to touch spirits, and Adams has, I believe, to this day, kept his vow. Sometime in the following year, that is, about 1799, we learn from Adams, says Captain Beechey, that Quintel lost his wife by a fall from the cliff while in search of bird's eggs, that he grew discontented, and though there were several disposable women on the island, and he had already experienced the fatal effects of a similar demand, nothing would satisfy him but the wife of one of his companions. Of course, neither of them felt inclined to accede to this unreasonable demand, and he sought an opportunity of putting them both to death. He was fortunately foiled in his first attempt, but swore openly he would speedily repeat it. Adams and Young, having no doubt he would follow up his intention, and, fearing he might be more successful in the next attempt, came to the resolution that, as their own lives were not safe while he was in existence, they were justified in putting him to death, which they did by felling him, as they would an ox with a hatchet. Such was the melancholy fate of seven of the leading mutineers, who escaped from justice only to add murder to their former crimes, and such, it may be added, was the polluted source thus stained with the guilt of mutiny, piracy, and murder from which the present simple and innocent race of islanders has proceeded. And what is most of all extraordinary, the very man from whom they have received their moral and religious instruction is one who is among the first and foremost in the mutiny, and deeply implicated in all the deplorable consequences that were the result of it. This man and young were now the sole survivors out of the fifteen males that had landed upon the island. Young, as has been stated, 
was a man of some education and of a serious turn of mind and as beechy says it would have been wonderful after the many dreadful scenes at which they had assisted if the solitude and tranquillity that ensued had not disposed them to repentance they had a bible and a prayer book which were found in the bounty and they read the church service regularly every sunday they now resolved to have morning and evening family prayers and to instruct the children who amounted to nineteen many of them between the ages of seven and nine years young however was not long suffered to survive his repentance an asthmatic complaint terminated his existence about a year after the death of quintel and adams was now left the sole survivor of the guilty and misguided mutineers of the bounty it is remarkable that the name of young should never once occur in any shape as connected with the mutiny except in the evidence of lieutenant hayward who includes his name in a mass of others he neither appears among the armed nor the unarmed he is not stated to be among those who were on deck and was probably therefore one of those who were confined below bly nevertheless has not omitted to give him a character young was an able and stout seaman he however always proved a worthless wretch if the sincere repentance of adams and the most successful exertions to train up the rising generation in piety and virtue can be considered as expatiating in some degree his former offences this survivor is fully entitled to every indulgence that frail humanity so often requires and which indeed has been extended to him by all the officers of the navy who have visited the island and witnessed the simple manners and the settled habits of morality and piety which prevail in this happy and well-regulated society they have all strongly felt that the merits and redeeming qualities of the later years of his life have so far atoned for his former guilt that he ought not to be molested but rather encouraged in his meritorious efforts if not for his own sake at least for that of the innocent young people dependent on him still it ought never to be forgotten that he was one of the first and most daring in the atrocious act of mutiny and piracy and that had he remained in otaheite and been taken home in the pandora nothing could have saved him from an ignominious death his pretending to say that he was in his cot and that he was forced to take arms may perhaps be palliated under his peculiar circumstances wishing to stand as fair before his countrymen as his case would admit but it is not strictly true for he was third upon the deck armed and stood sentry over bly with a loaded musket and fixed bayonet the story he told to beechy respecting the advice stated to have been given by mr stewart to christian to take possession of the ship is as has been shown wholly false but here his memory may have failed him if any such advice was given it is much more likely to have proceeded from young he also told two different stories with regard to the conduct of christian to sir thomas staines and captain pippin he represented this ill-fated young man as never happy after the rash and criminal step he had taken and that he was always sullen and morose and committed so many acts of cruelty as to incur the hatred 
and detestation of his associates in crime, whereas he told Captain Beechy that Christian was always cheerful, that his example was of the greatest service in exciting his companions to labor, that he was naturally of a happy, ingenuous disposition, and won the good opinion and respect of all who served under him, which cannot be better exemplified, he says, than by his maintaining, under circumstances of great perplexity, the respect and regard of all who were associated with him up to the hour of his death, and that even at the present moment Adams, in speaking of him, never omits to say, Mr. Christian. Why indeed should he? Christian was a gentleman by birth, and an officer in His Majesty's service, and was of course always so addressed. But why was he murdered within two years, one account says nine months, after the party reached the island? Captain Beechy has answered the question. For oppression and ill-treatment of the Otaheitans. End note 39. That Christian, so far from being cheerful, was, on the contrary, always uneasy in his mind about his own safety, is proved by his having selected a cave at the extremity of the high ridge of craggy hills that runs across the island as his intended place of refuge in the event of any ship of war discovering the retreat of the mutineers, in which cave he resolved to sell his life as dearly as he could. In this recess he always kept a store of provisions, and near it erected a small hut, well concealed by trees, which served the purpose of a watch-house. So difficult, says Captain Beechy, was the approach to this cave, that even if a party were successful in crossing the ridge, he might have bid defiance as long as his ammunition lasted to any force. The reflection alone of his having sent adrift to perish on the wide ocean, for he could entertain no other idea, no less than nineteen persons, all of whom, one only excepted, were innocent of any offense toward him, must have constantly haunted his mind and left him little disposed to be happy and cheerful. The truth is, as appears in Morrison's journal, that during the short time they remained at Tabuai, and till the separation of the mutineers at Otaheite, when sixteen forsook him, and eight only, of the very worst, accompanied him in his quest of some retreat. He acted the part of a tyrant to a much greater extent than the man who, he says, drove him to the act of mutiny. After giving an account of the manner of his death, Captain Beechy says, Thus fell a man who, from being the reputed ringleader of the mutiny, has obtained an unenviable celebrity, and whose crime may perhaps be considered as in some degree palliated by the tyranny which led to its commission. It is to be hoped such an act as he was guilty of will never be so considered. If mutiny could be supposed to admit of palliation, a fatal blow would be struck not only at the discipline but at the very existence of the navy. Any relaxation in bringing to condign punishment persons guilty of mutiny would weaken and ultimately destroy the efficiency of this great and powerful machine. Nor, indeed, is it at all necessary that the punishment for mutiny should admit of any palliation. Whenever an act of tyranny, or an unnecessary degree of severity, is exercised by a commanding officer, let the fact only be proved, 
and he is certain to be visited with all the rigor that the degree of his oppressive conduct will warrant. Had Christian but waited patiently the arrival of the bounty in England, and the alleged conduct of Bly toward his officers and crew had been proved, he would unquestionably have been dismissed from His Majesty's service. With regard to Adams, though his subsequent conduct was highly meritorious, and to him alone it might be said is owing the present happy state of the little community on Pitcairn's Island, his crime, like that of Christian's, can never be considered as wiped away. Sir Thomas Staines, the first British officer who called at the island, it may well be supposed had the struggle on this trying occasion between duty and feeling. It was his imperative duty to have seized and brought him a prisoner to England, where he must have been tried, and would no doubt have been convicted of a crime for which several of his lesser active accomplices had suffered the penalty of death, though he might, and probably would, from the length of time and circumstances in his favor, have received the king's pardon. Perhaps, however, on the whole, it was fortunate that in balancing, as it is known this gallant officer did, between the sense of duty and the sense of feeling, the latter prevailed, and justice yielded to mercy. Had a Bly or an Edwards been placed in his situation, it is to be feared that, judging from their former conduct, passion in the one and frigidity in the other, would most likely have consigned the criminals to captivity in irons, and the innocent and helpless family, solely dependent on him, to misery and destruction. And yet, in so doing, they would not have deviated from their strict line of duty, disalitir visum. The Blossom was the first ship of war that John Adams had been on board since the mutiny, and, as Captain Beechey observes, his mind would naturally revert to scenes that could not fail to produce a temporary embarrassment but no apprehension for his safety appeared to form any part of his thoughts, and as every person endeavored to set his mind at rest, he soon found himself at ease and at home. It was several hours before the ship approached the shore, and the boats put off before she came to anchor. On account of the rocks and formidable breakers, the party who went on shore were landed by the young men, two at a time, in their whaleboat. The difficulty of landing, says Captain Beechey, was more than repaid by the friendly reception we met with on the beach from Hannah Young, a very interesting young woman, the daughter of Adams. In her eagerness to greet her father, she had outrun her female companions, for whose delay she thought it necessary in the first place to apologize, by saying they had all been over the hill in company with John Buffett to look at the ship, and were not yet returned. It appeared that John Buffett, who was a seafaring man, had ascertained that the ship was a man of war, and, without knowing exactly why, became so alarmed for the safety of Adams that he either could not or would not answer any of the interrogatories which were put to him. This mysterious silence set all the party in tears, as they feared he had discovered something adverse to their patriarch. At length his obduracy yielded to their entreaties, but before he explained the cause of his conduct, the boats were seen to put off from the ship, and Hannah immediately hurried to the beach to kiss the old man's cheek, which she did with a fervency demonstrative of the warmest affection. Her apology for her companions was rendered unnecessary by their appearance on the steep and circuitous path down the mountain, who, as they arrived on the beach, 
successfully welcomed us to their island, with a simplicity and sincerity which left no doubt of the truth of their professions. The whole group simultaneously expressed a wish that the visitors would stay with them several days, and on their signifying a desire to get to the village before dark and to pitch the observatory, every article and instrument found a bearer along a steep path which led to the village, concealed by groups of coconut trees, the females bearing their burdens over the most difficult parts without inconvenience. The village consisted of five houses on a cleared piece of ground sloping toward the sea. While the men assisted in pitching the tent, the women employed themselves in preparing the supper. The mode of cooking was precisely that of Otaheite, by heated stones in a hole made in the ground. At young Christians the table was spread with plates, knives, and forks. John Buffett said grace in an emphatic manner, and this is repeated every time a fresh guest sits down while the meal is going on. So strict are they in this respect that it is not deemed proper to touch a bit of bread without saying grace before and after it. On one occasion, says Captain Beechey, I had engaged Adams in conversation, and he incautiously took the first mouthful without having said grace. But before he had swallowed it, he recollected himself, and feeling as if he had committed a crime, immediately put away what he had in his mouth and commenced his prayer. Their rooms and tables are lighted up by torches made of dodo nuts, aluritis tribola, strung upon the fibers of a palm leaf, which form a good substitute for candles. It is remarkable enough that although the female part of the society is highly respected, yet, in one instance, a distinction is kept up, which in civilized countries would be deemed degrading. It is that which is rigidly observed in all the South Sea Islands, and indeed throughout almost the whole Eastern world, that no woman shall eat in the presence of her husband. And though this distinction between man and wife is not carried quite so far in Pitcairn's Island, it is observed to the extent of excluding all women from table, when there is a deficiency of seats. It seems they defended this custom on the ground that man was made before woman, and is entitled, therefore, to be first served. A conclusion, observes Beechey, that deprives us of the company of the woman at table during the whole of our stay at the island. Far, however, from considering themselves neglected, they very good-naturedly chatted with us behind our seats and flapped away the flies, and, by a gentle tap, accidentally or playfully delivered, reminded us occasionally of the honor that was done us. The women, when the men had finished, sat down to what remained. The beds were next prepared. A mattress composed of palm leaves was covered with native cloth made of the paper mulberry tree, in the same manner as in Otaheite. The sheets were of the same material, and it appeared from their crackling that they were quite new from the loom, or rather the beater. The whole arrangement is stated to have been comfortable and inviting to repose. One interruption only disturbed their first sleep. This was the melody of the evening hymn, which, after the lights were put out, was chanted by the whole family in the middle of the room. At early dawn they were also awakened by their morning hymn, and the family devotion, 
after which the islanders all set out to their several occupations. Some of the women had taken the linen of their visitors to wash, others were preparing for the next meal, and others were employed in the manufacture of cloth. The innocence and simplicity of these interesting young creatures are strongly exemplified in the following description. By our bedsides had already been placed some ripe fruits, and our hats were crowned with chaplets of the fresh blossom of the nono, or flower tree, Morinda citrifolia, which the women had gathered in the freshness of the morning dew. On looking round the apartment, though it contained several beds, we found no partition, curtain, or screens. They had not yet been considered necessary. So far, indeed, from concealment being thought of when we were about to get up, the women, anxious to show their attention, assembled to wish us good morning, and to inquire in what way they could best contribute to our comforts, and to present us with some little gift which the produce of the island afforded. Many persons would have felt awkward at rising and dressing before so many pretty black-eyed damsels, assembled in the center of a spacious room. But, by a little habit, we overcame this embarrassment, and from the benefit of their services in fetching water as we required it, and in substituting clean linen for such as we pulled off. Their cottages are spacious and strongly built of wood, in an oblong form, and thatched with the leaves of the palm tree, bent round the stem of a branch from the same, and laced horizontally to rafters, so placed as to give a proper pitch to the roof. An upper story is appropriated to sleeping, and has four beds, one in each angle of the room, and large enough for three or four persons to sleep on. The lower is the eating room, having a broad table, with several stools placed round it. The lower room communicates with the upper by a stout ladder in the center. Immediately round the village are small enclosures for fattening pigs, goats, and poultry, and beyond them are the cultivated grounds producing the banana, plantains, melon, yam, taro, sweet potato, tea tree, cloth plant, with other useful roots, fruits, and a variety of shrubs. Every cottage has its outhouse for making cloth, its baking place, its pigsty, and its poultry house. During the stay of the strangers on the island, they dine sometimes with one person, sometimes with another, their meals being always the same, and consisting of baked pig, yams, and taro, and sometimes sweet potatoes. Goats are numerous on the island, but neither their flesh nor their milk is relished by the natives. Yams constitute their principal food, either boiled, baked, or mixed with coconut, made into cakes, and eaten with molasses extracted from the tea root. Taro root is no bad substitute for bread, and bananas, plantains, and a poi are wholesome and nutritive fruits. The common beverage is water, but they make tea from the tea plant, flavored with ginger, and sweetened with the juice of the sugar cane. They but seldom kill a pig, living mostly on fruit and vegetables. With this simple diet, early rising, and taking a great deal of exercise, they are subject to few diseases, and, Captain Beachy says, they are certainly a finer and more athletic race than is usually found among the families of mankind. The young children are punctual in their attendance at school, 
and are instructed by John Buffett in reading, writing, and arithmetic, to which are added precepts of religion and morality, drawn chiefly from the Bible and prayer book, than which, fortunately, they possess no others that might mystify and perplex their understanding on religious subjects. They seldom indulge in jokes or other kinds of levity, and Beechey says, They are so accustomed to take what is said in its literal meaning that irony was always considered a falsehood in spite of explanation, and that they could not see the propriety of uttering what was not strictly true for any purpose whatever. The Sabbath is wholly devoted to the church service, to prayer, reading, and serious meditation. No work of any kind is done on that day, not even cooking, which is prepared on the preceding evening. I attended, says Beechey, their church on this day, and found the service well conducted. The prayers were read by Adams, and the lessons by Buffett, the service being preceded by hymns. The greatest devotion was apparent in every individual, and in the children there was a seriousness unknown in the younger part of our communities at home. In the course of the litany they prayed for their sovereign and all the royal family, with much apparent loyalty and sincerity. Some family prayers, which were thought appropriate to their own particular case, were added to the usual service, and Adams, fearful of leaving out any essential part, read in addition all those prayers which are intended only as substitutes for others. A sermon followed, which was very well delivered by Buffett, and lest any part of it should be forgotten or escape attention, it was read three times. The whole concluded with hymns, which were first sung by the grown people and afterwards by the children. The service thus performed was very long, but the neat and cleanly appearance of the congregation, the devotion that animated every countenance, and the innocence and simplicity of the little children prevented the attendance from becoming wearisome. In about half an hour afterwards, we again assembled to prayers, and at sunset service was repeated, so that, with their morning and evening prayers, they may be said to have church five times on a Sunday. Perhaps it will be thought by some that they carry their seriousness too far, and that the younger people are not allowed a sufficient quantity of recreation. The exercise and amusement of dancing, once so much resorted to in most of the islands of the Pacific, is here almost excluded. With great difficulty and much entreaty, the visitors prevailed on three grown-up ladies to stand up to perform the Otaheitan dance, which they consented to with a reluctance that showed it was done only to oblige them. It was little more than a shuffling of the feet, sliding past each other, and snapping their fingers. They did not long continue this diversion, considering it as too great a levity, and only the three before-mentioned ladies could be prevailed on to exhibit their skill. They appeared to have little taste for music, either instrumental or vocal. Adams, when on board the Blossom for two or three days, made no difficulty in joining in the dance, and was remarkably cheerful, but on no occasion neglected his usual devotions. Captain Beechey has no doubt of the sincerity of his piety. He slept in the same cabin, but would never get into his cot until the captain was in bed, and supposed to be asleep when, in a retired corner of the cabin, he fell on his knees and performed his devotions, and, 
He was always up first in the morning for the same purpose. This good old man told Beechey one day that it would add much to his happiness if he would read the marriage ceremony to him and his wife, as he could not bear the idea of living with her without its being done, when a proper opportunity should offer, as was now the case. Though Adams was aged and the old woman had been blind and bedridden for several years, Beechey says he made such a point of it that it would have been cruel to refuse him. They were, accordingly, the following day, duly united, and the event noted in a register by John Buffett. The marriage that takes place among the young people are, however, performed by Adams, who makes use of a ring for such occasion, which has united every couple on the island since its first settlement. The regulated age under which no man is allowed to marry is twenty, and that of the woman eighteen. The restrictions with regard to relationship are the same as with us, and are strictly put in force when parties are about to marry. Adams also officiates at christenings. Captain Beechey observes that these amiable people rigidly adhere to their words and promise. Even in cases where the most scrupulous among Europeans might think themselves justified in some relaxation of them. Thus, George Adams, in his early days, had fallen in love with Polly Young, a girl somewhat older than himself. But Polly, for some reason or other, had incautiously declared that she would never give her hand to George Adams, who, however, still hoped she would one day relent, and, of course, was unremitting in his endeavors to please her. Nor was he mistaken. His constancy and his handsome form, which George took every opportunity of displaying before her, softened Polly's heart, and she would willingly have given him her hand. But the vow of her youth was not to be got over, and the lovesick couple languished on from day to day, victims of the folly of early resolutions. This weighty case was referred to the British officers, who decided that it would be much better to marry than to continue unhappy in consequence of a hasty resolution made before the judgment was matured. But Polly's scruples still remained, and those who gave their decision left them unmarried. Captain Beechey, however, has recently received a letter stating that George Adams and Polly Young had joined hands and were happy, but the same letter announced the death of John Adams, which took place in March 1829. The demise of this old patriarch is the most serious loss that could have befallen this infant colony. The perfect harmony and contentment in which they appear to live together, the innocence and simplicity of their manners, their conjugal and parental affection, their moral, religious, and virtuous conduct, and their exemption from any serious vice, are all to be ascribed to the exemplary conduct and instruction of old John Adams, and it is gratifying to know that five years after the visit of the Blossom, and one year subsequent to Adams' death, the little colony continued to enjoy the same uninterrupted state of harmony and contentment as before, in consequence of her representation made by Captain Beechey when there, of the distressed state of this little society, with regard to want of certain necessary articles, His Majesty's government sent out to Valparaiso to be conveyed from thence for their use a proportion for sixty persons of the following articles, sailors' blue jackets and trousers, flannel waistcoats, 
pairs of stockings and shoes, women's dresses, spades, mattocks, shovels, pickaxes, trowels, rakes, all of which were taken in His Majesty's ship Serengapatam, commanded by Captain the Honorable William Waldegrave, who arrived there in March 1830. The ship had scarcely anchored when George Young was alongside in his canoe, which he guided by a paddle, and soon after, Thursday, October Christian, in a jolly boat with several others, who, having come on board, were invited to breakfast, and one of them said grace as usual, both before and after it. The captain, the chaplain, and some other officers accompanied these natives on shore, and, having reached the summit of the first level or plain, which is surrounded by a grove or screen of coconut trees, they found the wives and mothers assembled to receive them. "'I have brought you a clergyman,' says the captain. "'God bless you,' issued from every mouth. "'But is he come to stay with us?' "'No, you bad man. Why not?' "'I cannot spare him. He is the chaplain of my ship. "'But I have brought you clothes and other articles which King George has sent you. "'But,' says Kitty Quintel, "'we want food for our souls.' "'Our reception,' says Captain Waldengrave, "'was most cordial, particularly that of Mr. Watson, the chaplain.' and the meeting of the wives and husbands most affecting, exchanging expressions of joy that could not have been exceeded had they just returned from a long absence. The men sprang up to the trees, throwing down coconuts, the husks of which were torn off by others with their teeth, and offering us the milk. As soon as we had rested ourselves, they took us to their cottage, where we dined and slept. Captain Waldegrave says it was highly gratifying to observe their native simplicity of manners, apparently without guile. Their hospitality was unbounded, their cottages being open to all, and all were welcome to such food as they possessed. Pigs and fowls were immediately killed and dressed, and, when the guests were seated, one of the islanders, in the attitude of prayer, and his eyes raised towards heaven, repeated a simple grace for the present food they were about to partake of, beseeching, at the same time, spiritual nourishment, at the end of which each responded, Amen. On the arrival of anyone during the repast, they all paused until the new guest had said grace. At night they all assembled in one of the cottages to hear the afternoon church service performed by Mr. Watson, and Captain Waldegrave describes it as a most striking scene. The place chosen was the bedroom of one of the double cottages, or one with an upper story. The ascent was by broad ladder from the lower room through a trap door. The clergyman took his station between two beds, with a lamp burning close behind him. In the bed on his right were three infants sound asleep. At the foot of that on his left were three men sitting. On each side and in front were the men, some wearing only the simple Mara, displaying their gigantic figures, others in jackets and trousers, their necks and feet bare. Behind stood the woman in their modest homemade cloth dresses, which entirely covered the form, leaving only the head and feet bare. The girls wore, in addition, a sheet knotted in the manner of a Roman senator's toga, thrown over the right shoulder and under the left arm. When the general confession commenced, they all knelt down facing the clergyman, with their hands raised to the breast in the attitude of prayer, 
slowly and distinctly repeating the confession after the clergyman. They prayed for the King of England, whom they consider as their sovereign. A sermon followed from a text which Captain Waldegrave thinks was most happily chosen. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. At the conclusion of the service, they requested permission to sing their parting hymn, when the whole congregation, in good time, sang, Depart in Peace. Captain Waldegrave, like all former visitors, bears testimony to the kind disposition and active benevolence of these simple islanders. The children, he says, are fond and obedient. The parents affectionate and kind towards their children. None of the party ever heard a harsh word made use of by one towards another. They never slander or speak ill of one another. If any question was asked as to the character or conduct of a particular individual, the answer would probably be something of this kind. If it could do any good, I would answer you. But as it cannot, it would be wrong to tell tales. Or, if the question applied to one who had committed a fault, they would say, it would be wrong to tell my neighbor's shame. The kind and benevolent feeling of this amiable people is extended to the surviving widows of the Otaheite men who were slain on the island, and who would be left in a helpless and destitute state, were it not for the humane considerations of the younger part of the society, by whom they are supported and regarded with every mark of attention. End of chapter 8, part 2 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas